0: and welcome to today's episode of Cybersecurity Inside, What That Means. Today, my guest is Eddie Zervigon. He's CEO of Quantum Exchange, and he's here to talk about next generation cryptography. Specifically, what I'm interested in is what happens when we build things like critical infrastructure relies on, like satellites, send them up into the atmosphere or outer atmosphere or orbit today, and then What happens when quantum computing comes down the road? How do we make sure that they're protected in the future? So Eddie is going to help us have that conversation and understand what options are out there. First of all, Eddie, welcome.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: What I'd like to do is have you set the stage for what transition is about to occur, and what kind of problem is happening in the quantum compute and cryptographic space that we have to deal with?
1: Sure. I think to state the the problem set, if you will, we're about to undergo the greatest cryptographic migration in our history. And we've used technologies that have served us for the better part of 45 years to really make this evolution into the internet digital age, and it 's been a phenomenal run, but that run is coming to an end with the advent of either quantum computing or advanced computing slash probabilistic machines and the reason that is is because for the last forty five years we 've used basic math to encrypt. The data that we send and, and when we say data, I mean all data, right? Uh, it could be anything from command and control for satellites as well as, you know, sending information or data regarding gas pressures or things as uh, simple as basically, you know, ID information or appointments and and whatnot that we do every day. So that has been well served by the math that was developed 45 years ago by Whit Diffie and Martin Hellman, uh, and it's the Diffie-Hellman Key Exchange. And then shortly thereafter, a year later, RSA followed up with their version of it. And it's basically, let's encrypt the data with math that's very hard to break. And the good news is that for 45 years, we've done a better job of encrypting than the bad guys have done uh, their ability to decrypt that information. So it's been an extraordinary run, but now we're coming to a point where computers are able to do exactly that very calculation very easily and efficiently. And so we've got to now figure out what's the safety or security protocols that are going to take us into this, what we call post-quantum era. And so the prevailing thought is that whether you think it's going to happen 2 to 3 years from now, 5 years from now, 10 years from now, we know that the inability to respond to the problem in a quick and meaningful manner may result in catastrophic losses. So that's the problem set that we're trying to uh, figure out.
0: And you said that there's basically two approaches to solve this problem. Can you explain what those two approaches are and whether they're, you know, complementary or mutually exclusive?
1: Sure. So so when we talk about post-quantum cryptography, we talk about algorithms, right? Being able to factor an extremely large number into its two prime numbers. And those are computations that computers do not do very well. And the other way to look at this is with what's called quantum key distribution, which is using the properties of physics to actually defeat a quantum computer, the properties of physics, meaning photonic delivery, if you will, or creation of the keys at both ends over fiber optic network. So as it sounds, it's a complicated thing, very expensive, not very scalable today, but at some point in the future, it will be. So those are the two kind of tools in the toolbox that we have to combat this coming problem. And there's a lot of work being done into how we're going to incorporate these new tool sets, if you will, into a security stack going forward.
0: So let me ask you to just describe briefly what quantum exchange is doing. I know part of this is the concept around crypto agility, which you might also help us understand.
1: Sure. Sure. So the way quantum exchange approaches the problem is let's look at it a little more fundamentally in terms of the architecture. So 45 years ago, when Whit Diffie and Martin Hellman developed the Diffie-Hellman key exchange, uh, it was assumed that there would be one communication line. So you and I would be communicating, Camille, and I would be sending you encrypted data. There's only one line between us. And so therefore, it made sense that the data and the key the encryption key had to travel together because there was only one line of communication. Now, if you look at even your cell phone, you've got your Wi-Fi, you've got your cell access, you've got multiple points of carriage, if you will, through your WhatsApp account or your Signal or your Netflix account. So there are multiple paths. So why are we not incorporating the fact that now we can deliver multiple paths to separate the key from the data and make it that much harder for an attacker to be able to be successful in decrypting information, even if they were to have a quantum computer.
0: Right. You've basically got, well, I think this is not a good analogy. I'm going to have to say it anyway, because it's the only thing coming to mind. But it's kind of like, if you know the credit card number, it's not enough. You have to still have that little CV, whatever the code is on the back, the three digits to make sure that you're actually in possession of the card. I think this is almost the inverse of that, because you're saying, uh, you're you're actually getting the key delivered to you through a separate pathway than you are the actual data. So it's kind of the opposite of that.
1: I would even take that even further and say it's basically two-factor authentication for encryption keys. I, I remember five years ago, uh, two-factor authentication, that was like really cool stuff that you would do when you were trying to send a wire for $50,000 somewhere. Now you can't even buy concert tickets without two-factor authentication, right. and that's basically the same concept. It's an out-of-band channel that authenticates who you say you are, and so it's the same concept that we try to to, to bring, but to the delivery of an out-of-band key in order to protect a series of data transmissions.
0: Uh, One of the things I think you've done is, is done sort of a proof of concept around satellites and protecting something about them. Can you describe a little bit more what that was?
1: Sure. Uh, you know, the fundamental issue with satellites, as you pointed out, is once you launch a satellite, you spend a lot of time on Earth figuring out exactly what you want to put on the satellite and making it as efficient as possible. And so, one of the things that you cannot do is once you launch a satellite, go up and, as I, as you mentioned, uh, send a Maytag repairman in order to go fix it. So, the way we've looked at this is to think about kind of future-proofing these satellites because getting into quantum and and how realistic and how soon the quantum threat will be here is like arguing religion. Some people think that by the time the error rates come down to an acceptable level, it'll be years, if not decades from now. Other people think that you know two to three years, five years is a distinct possibility. And so rather than get into that whole frame of mind, the reality is that if you look at space and satellites that are launched, the vast majority of satellites are within either one of those timeframes, if you will. So it's important to protect it, not only as it relates to the telemetry tracking and control, the TT&C, but also the data coming onto the satellite and coming off of the satellite. And so that's important because, you know, you're talking about 4,200 commercial satellites up there now, that's growing at about 20% a year. So it's a significant uptake in satellites and therefore the ability to protect them and avoid in the future what's called a man in the middle attack where someone can come in and falsify who they are and basically take control of the satellite and in essence deorbit the satellite, send it crashing back into the earth's atmosphere is something that's extremely important, especially as you're, as you're talking about communication satellites or imagery satellites, which are all very important Pieces of the satellite architecture that we see um, across multiple verticals. And then the other part of this, of course, is the data coming off of it. If you cannot be reasonably certain that the data coming off of these satellites is what you think it is, then what's the point of the satellite? It it kind of invalidates the transmission method because you can no longer authenticate the information that you're getting from the satellites. So it's extremely important for those reasons. And and those are ones that we've done now tests because if you think about it, the ability to deliver an out-of-band key anywhere in the world. Uh, especially as you're talking about military and intelligence applications, is incredibly important, especially in light of these oncoming advancements, if you will, in computing.
0: So what percentage of essentially our critical infrastructure is being provided by satellites now? We're we're seeing more and more launch all the time. I'm thinking about telecommunications, but also, I suppose, media and entertainment. How big of a problem is this going to be?
1: Well, if you think about it, I think the most recent stat, and I'm loosely uh, quoting a report that was issued by Space Capital, I think we're only about 3 to 4 percent in terms of satellites, being 3 to 4 percent of the total internet communications traffic. So it's a small percentage, but it's growing rather rapidly. Because the the ease of launch of these satellites, I remember when we used to launch satellites back at the old Digital Globe, you were talking about $60, $70 million to launch a satellite. And now you're talking a fraction of that. You're talking about people talking about launching satellites for a million, two million bucks. Mm-hmm. And so that's part of the reason the satellite industry has been fueled, because the startup cost to get up there is a lot cheaper.
0: What other kind of verticals are and I don't know if space is a vertical. Do you consider it a vertical or is it a horizontal? I do. <laughs>
1: Well, it's a horizontal in terms of industry segments. I mean, there are multiple industries, but it is a vertical in that there are a finite group of folks that do this in in scale that make a lot of sense. But the verticals that we really go after, one, government, obvious, right? And they're the ones that recognize the problem probably more so than anybody else. And then, you know, financial institutions, you've seen some recent coverage regarding financial institutions taking a much more proactive view on the quantum threat. We've been working with several financial institutions in exploring the way to kind of future proof their architecture. If you're going to put a lot of money into a, you know, your next generation SD-WAN architecture, you better make sure that it's future proof because if not, the cost of ripping and replacing as well as the downtime of the production network being down becomes incredibly incredibly expensive. So financial institutions, I think data centers, you know, in this world of what we call zero trust architecture, mm-hmm. right? So, whether it's going over terrestrial networks that you can't readily define where data is traveling, I mean, I could be sending you an email anywhere and it could travel who knows how many countries, how many data centers before it gets you, mm-hmm. right? So, you got to make sure throughout that whole path that it's protected if it's something, obviously, that you want to protect. And that's something that we really uh, try to uh, focus in on, especially as it relates to the data centers. And then I would say the 16 critical industries that were defined by the Biden administration. You know, energy is one that's extremely important because that's where you'll see real what we call killware, right, which is the next generation of ransomware. We've seen with Colonial Pipelines what even we could basically call a kind of rudimentary attack can do and the ill effects that that come from it. Mm-hmm. Just think about being able to increase the gas pressure on a line 20 times beyond its its maximum threshold and what that might do to a substation and then everybody down the line.
0: So when you talk about killware as a next generation of ransomware, you're saying rather than extract money or some sort of compensation um, in exchange for freeing up the resources, you actually just destroy the resource?
1: Yes, that's right. And you do that by perpetrating what's called a man-in-the-middle attack, mm-hmm. where you actually get in and are able to falsify who you are, Mm -hmm. and therefore allow real access to control data. You know, and one thing that we've seen, I'm sure you've seen this uh, time and time again, is that as a result of the pandemic, we are extending the range of what was reasonably acceptable in terms of the edge of computing and and being able to access network controls, significant, important network, you know, access controls. That's all great, but that comes at a cost. And therefore, the, the further and further you extend the edge, the more and more issues that come up as a result and the potential for nefarious actors to engage in your network.
0: I wanted to ask you also, there was an executive order relatively recently, and I'm wondering if you can talk about what you think that means, what that will mean, I guess, in the commercial sector over time.
1: There was an executive order last year that came out that kind of got the ball rolling on, on what we would call post-quantum cryptography. And then uh, about a month ago, an executive order came out uh, from the White House uh, National Security Memorandum 8, which really ups the game, which really puts specific timelines that government agencies have 180 days to put in next generation cryptography to mitigate these issues that we're talking about. And uh, if they don't, they have to seek a waiver from the government. And so the ball is now rolling. And there, even though there are not specific penalties or fines associated with it, that will come. And we've seen this, right? If you look at years ago, OMB uh, 6-16, which basically said that if you are dealing with a government remote device, you need to make sure that data on the device, data at rest, is encrypted. And uh, things like two-factor authentication and password timeout, right? So if you're not using it for a certain, you know, for 10 minutes, all of a sudden you get automatically logged out. Those are things that were incorporated into OMB 6-16 and very shortly after private enterprise had to incorporate that. Now it's ubiquitous. And so we see many of the same parallels happening with NSM-8 that as government agencies start rolling this out, it's not going to be too far before Uh, regulated entities, financial services, for example, Mm -hmm. are going to have to follow suit.
0: The one vertical that you didn't mention that I was kind of surprised was automobiles, because they have just such a long lifespan once they're released.
1: Uh, That's a good one. That's another one. But, you know, you have to kind of pick and choose your spots, Mm -hmm. right? If you're talking about autonomous vehicles in the future and what that can mean for all of a sudden somebody sending an update to your Tesla and all of a sudden being able to get a hold and control your vehicle as you're driving and, and prevent you from braking or accelerating, I mean... That's going to be a problem. There's no doubt about that. And that's something we got to solve for. But I think more right now, our financial institutions dealing with significant dollars and the fact that right now, it's estimated that every single fiber optic line of interest coming in and out of Manhattan is being basically scraped for mm-hmm. play later on when there's a, the ability to decrypt it. And so those are the things that right now we have to kind of figure out and in very short order.
0: So you're saying, uh, well, we'll just use the the term sort of bad hacker for lack of a better term, are collecting information today, even though they can't decrypt it so that in the future when they have access to quantum, even if it's sort of leasing quantum, they could actually then decrypt and then kind of look back and see what was being exchanged and possibly put together some kind of information from that.
1: Sure. We know the governments have said they're they're doing that. Mm-hmm. Uh, they may not have put it as, uh, as bluntly as you just put it, mm-hmm. but they are doing it. And so, you know, that's part of the problem because it's not like Y2K, right? Where everybody thought December 31st, 2000, that's the problem date. Mm-hmm. The problem is today. It's happening now. The question is, when we talk to CISOs and CIOs, the thing that we want to focus on are where are your biggest pipes mm-hmm. and what is the most pertinent data? By pertinent data, meaning data that you want to keep secret for an extended period of time, five, 10, 15 years, certainly inside the the Q day, if you will, Meaning the day that we, quantum computers can actually break encryption. Mm-hmm. We're not talking about having to cover every single piece because it, it's a piecemeal operation. You got to kind of figure out where your largest vulnerabilities are and address those as soon as possible.
0: So, if you're a um, you're a CEO of a company, let's take another company who's a CEO or somebody in the C-suite who's kind of been alerted to this problem. And now they're saying, we need to probably do something about it. What's kind of their first step? I mean, should they be looking more at like, does their cloud service provider have a plan because they have a lot of their corporate IP stored on the cloud service provider? Or should they be looking at an in-house kind of a plan? Does it depend on their industry? Like, how do you even begin to kind of assess your situation?
1: And you're starting to see this now. There's going to be a whole area of quantum threat assessment, and we're helping some of the larger um, consulting firms really think through that. But it's basically developing a threat matrix and to see where are these the largest vulnerabilities mm-hmm. that have the information or the data that's flowing through them that are most pertinent, most relevant, and most important for you to keep secret for a period of time. And then seeing within that threat matrix, if you will, where are the points where you kind of lose control of the data and then figure out where you're going from there. As we go more and more to the public cloud, this becomes more and more of an issue, which is why we're talking to the data centers, because we think that, you know, right now, these are all differentiating factors. To be able to say that you are the first data center Mm -hmm. to use quantum resistant cryptography in order to get data from one end of your network to the other end of the network, Mm -hmm. you know, to, to you. I think that's a differentiator. In two to three years, that's not going to be a differentiator. It's going to be a must-have. And so now it's about really finding those enterprises, not just in in data centers, Mm -hmm. but really finding those enterprises within any of these verticals that we talk about that want to take a lean-forward lead role in being the ones acknowledged as the thought leader in the area.
0: And some people have concerns around a hit to performance as they encrypt more and more data. What's your take on that? Reasonable trade-off, or we're getting better and better at other kinds of accelerators that help kind of overcome that?
1: Performance degradation is obviously been, it's always been an issue, right? That's why asymmetric key encryption was developed, right? Because symmetric key encryption, as good as it might be, is not scalable. And now with AES- that encryption scheme being under attack, now you've got to really think about what we can do. I mean, if you, look, if you can encrypt in the most, uh, let's take one time pad, right, which would probably be the, the gold standard, if you will, of encryption. The problem is that the encryption file or the key ends up being larger than the data that you're transmitting. Right. So there in lies the problem. We think that, again, going back to the way we kind of approach it, it's an architectural solution if you're able to separate the key from the data then all of a sudden the attacker's problem doesn't become the key it becomes finding the other key the second key what we call the keck, the key encrypting key and if you're able to uh, use that really as what we what we like to call defense in depth then that's more I think uh, more effective and more efficient than just making the math harder and harder to a point where the cost of transmitting the data with the key becomes prohibitive
0: And K-E-K, just to make sure we're defining it clearly, this is key encryption key. This is the key that you've encrypted the key that you're using to decrypt the encryption with.
1: Correct, (laughs) which is is sent out of band.
0: Right, okay. And what does out of band mean?
1: Out of band means uh, over a separate channel. Okay. So, you know, as we talked about before, two-factor authentication. If I'm my bank account and I'm on the internet, And I'm trying to wire my brother $15,000 and all of a sudden I'm going to get a token on my cell phone, completely different communication. It's a cell communication of the token that I now have to input into that. So it's, it's the same concept. I mean, you know, it, it's really not that. I mean, what we do is not easy to do. Uh, and there's a lot that goes into it, especially when you're dealing with a lot of vendors. Right. That's the, the beauty of what we do. We're agnostic. You know, we, we try to make sure that no matter how this evolves, the investment that you've made in terms of architecture will cover you. Uh, And Mm -hmm. that's what really it's about, because if you look at DHS and you look at uh, Secretary Mayorkas's um, directive last year, last March, they talk about, look, post-quantum cryptography and the algorithms is well on its way to being effective and and successful. We think, we hope, but the reality is that we're most worried about adoption because how are we going to put this all together? especially if you're in an industry such as financial services, where you're highly regulated, you need FIPS validated gear, right? How is this all going to come together? Again, it's the largest cryptographic migration in our history. And even if we get the math right, even if we get the algos right, the question then becomes, how are we going to incorporate it and use these newfound tools in a way that's going to be adopted seamlessly, or so you would hope, into multiple industries, multiple security stacks that are going to be needed in order to be effective.
0: Well, a uh, very interesting conversation, Eddie. Thank you so much for your perspective. I appreciate your time and also My the pleasure. fact that you're looking into this and trying to help everybody figure out what to do and how to future-proof.
1: Thank you so very much, Camille. Really appreciate it and, and love your podcast. I listen to it all the time. So thank you for what you do.
0: Thanks.